Well, time travel is a popular element in science fiction because I think in our imaginations, we, we so wish that it were a true thing that we could actually partake of. And so we, we love to think about what it would be like if it were true. And so that's why we have science fiction, uh, because it's for our imagination. And you've probably had the experience of reading a novel or watching a film in which time traveling was part of the plot line of the story. And you thought to yourself, if I had the ability to time travel, how would I use it? And if you're a parent, I ask your kids this at lunch. Because I ask my kids, and, and one of them who's a huge fan of Davy Crockett said, I would go back to the Alamo and I would save Davy Crockett so he was still alive today. So would you go back in time? Would you go forward in time? Well, I also not only asked my kids, but I asked the internet. And here were some of the answers that were given. One 14-year-old said they would travel to the future in search of a homework finishing machine. One person said they would go back in time to the beginning of right before when Apple or Amazon went public with their stock, and they would buy a lot of stock. And then a number of answers had to do with going back in time to fix things they regretted. And here's one that really struck me. My children are grown, they're out of the house, and I feel that I did not spend enough time with them. So I would go back and I would spend more time with my kids. And then a lot of answers were related to, what you say, kind of the desires of the heart. Money, wealth, possessions, different things like that. Going in the future to find you know, the Powerball numbers, things like that. It's an interesting exercise because when you read about it, you, you kind of see what is on the human heart and what they wish they could either change or what they could discover in the future. But the reason I bring it up is because today, through this text, this is the closest experience you will ever get to time travel. This is the closest a human being will ever come to traveling through time. Because through this parable, Jesus is going to take us and he is going to transport us to that great and awesome day at the end of human history when the curtain is about to come to a close and he stands as the judge over all people because he is going to judge the living and the dead. So it's as if we get a seat in the DeLorean, if you know what that is, and you look on the dashboard, and you see on the dashboard, destination, the final judgment. And then off we zip down the street, and then you end up there. And when you arrive at the scene as a spectator, it is one of the weightiest scenes you will ever encounter. We see Christ seated on his glorious throne. We see him separate all humanity into two groups and two groups only. We hear him speak words of welcome and blessing to one group and words of curse and dismissal to another group. And then after he speaks those words, you see the securing and sealing of eternal destinies right then and there. And then the parable's over, the time travel's done, and you are brought back to the present day. But you're not the same. Because you now have the knowledge of what the final day of human history will look like and sound like and feel like. So why does Jesus give us this prophetic peek into the future? Why does he bring us to the precipice of eternity, let us glance over, and then bring us back to the present day? Well, here's the answer to that question. Christ transports us to that final day on which he will judge the whole world so that we would look to him every day for the grace to live as self-forgetful servants. 
Jesus brings us to that day in his cosmic courtroom and brings us back here to the present so that we would live in light of that day. And we live in light of that day as self-forgetful servants of one another. We've been looking at Jesus teaching on the end of the age, the end of history. And again, I must reiterate, the point of peering into the end is not about your speculation. It is about your transformation. That is the point. He's not trying to give you information to fill out a chart. He is giving you information to transform your daily life. God gives us a window into the future that it might affect how we live right here, right now. And each parable has been doing it. Each parable is asking the question that we've been looking at the last three weeks. In light of the return of the king, what kind of lives ought we to live? The king is coming. How ought we to live in light of that return? So the parable of the ten virgins taught us that we ought to live lives of watchful preparation. Not flitting our lives away just on our passions and pleasures, but watching and preparing. Then the parable of the talents taught us that we ought to live lives of faithful stewardship. God has given you each resources, he's given you each gifts, and he's given you each opportunities. And we're to steward those for the sake of the king. But now this parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, is going to teach us that we ought to live lives pouring ourselves out in self-forgetful service. And each of these parables actually builds on one another. So you've all seen a wedding cake, right? Hopefully you've tasted a wedding cake as well. Multiple layers. Each of these parables is, is one layer building on top of the other. So at the bottom, you have the first parable. Be watchful and prepared. Well, what does that look like? Does watchful preparation mean let's go to the highest peak we can find in the Rocky Mountains and let's stare at the sky together? Is that what watchful preparation is? No. Second parable. Watchful preparation means faithful stewardship as you wait and prepare for the day of the Lord. Well, what does faithful stewardship look like with your resources, your gifts, and your opportunities? Well, it looks like this parable, self-forgetful service, meeting the needs of others as you pour out your resources, your gifts, into those opportunities. Well, now, before we walk through this parable, I probably owe you all an explanation. Namely, what is self-forgetfulness, and where am I getting it from this text? And I'm really glad you guys asked, so let's, let's go over it. So in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he gives this wonderful description of self-forgetfulness. So he's talking about the difference between pride and humility. And as he describes humility, he describes what self-forgetfulness looks like. He says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. That is a description of self-forgetfulness, and many have taken that insight and kind of restated it like this. A truly humble servant does not think more of themselves or less of themselves. Instead, they think of themselves less because they're thinking of others more. That's a truly humble person. Not one who's puffed up with pride or beaten down with shame, but thinks of themselves less because they think of others more. So you have a self-absorbed person 
who does not think of others because they are too busy either thinking more of themselves or less of themselves. They're either puffing themselves up or beating themselves down. But in both instances, they're self-absorbed, and so they cannot look outside of themselves to others. But then there's a self-forgetful person who is preoccupied with looking upward to God and outward to others rather than obsessively inward at themselves. And where do I get this from? Well, look at the response of the sheep to Christ in verses 37 and 39. He goes over the list. He gives their resume of what they have done that garners that invitation. Come, you who are blessed in my Father. He gives that resume, and here's how they respond. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? How did they get to the point where Christ remembers their deeds, but they do not? It's because they performed all of their services, not as those who are trying to earn their righteousness, not those who are keeping a record of their deeds, but of those who so love Christ that they looked outside of themselves and served others self-forgetfully. That's why they didn't remember. We'll contrast that with the self-absorption, which is reflected in the goat's response to Christ in verse 44. So he gives a resume of what they did not do. And they said, verse 44, they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. They were so absorbed in themselves that they didn't even notice the opportunities of service that passed them right by, that Christ had laid right before them. Both the sheep and the goats are surprised by the report Christ gives them. Isn't that interesting? They both don't know what happened, but they're surprised for different reasons. One is surprised because they were serving others self-forgetfully. The other is surprised because they were living self-absorbed lives and didn't even know the opportunities they missed. So in a sense, as you look at this parable, this parable is actually looking back at you. This parable is not just something you read. It's something that is reading you. It's a mirror in which you are to look at your own reflection in this parable and ask yourself this question. Which of these describes the state of my life and my heart? Am I self-absorbed? Or am I self-forgetful? Am I self-absorbed and don't see the opportunities to serve others? Or am I self-forgetful, pulling myself out in service to others? So the reason Christ transports us to this day in his cosmic courtroom, so that we would hear his invitation, hear his dismissal, listen to his assessment, see the eternal destiny sealed, and come back to the present day, so that we would be motivated to live dependent on his grace as self-forgetful servants. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this parable by considering four preoccupations of the self-forgetful servant. So four realities from this parable that should so occupy our thinking that we think of ourselves less and others more. So first, self-forgetful servants are preoccupied with the glory of Christ. Look at verses 31 to 33. The first thing we see in this parable is Christ in his glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So self-forgetful service starts with a realization that Christ is on the throne above all thrones and that he is glorious and he reigns in majestic splendor. Christians should not only realize this to begin self-forgetfulness, but it is actually dwelling on this, meditating upon it, and diving deeper into it that actually sustains and nurtures a self-forgetfulness. Christians should be like deep-sea divers. And if you ever watched those deep-sea diving uh, documentaries, but you, you think about the Mariana Trench, 26,000 feet down, and you, they, they keep getting deeper. They keep getting deeper, discovering more. They're, they're searching out the riches of ocean depth life, and they keep bringing out more as more technology comes along. Well, Christians should be deep sea divers, always trying to dive deeper into the depths of the glory of Christ. But here's the difference. Deep sea divers will hit bottom. They'll, they'll, they'll come and they'll, they'll get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. But a Christian diving deep into the depths of the glory of Christ will say for eternity, I have seen more depths, but I have not reached the bottom. That's what a Christian will say for all eternity. I have seen more depths, but I have not reached the bottom. And what are some of those depths we see in this passage? Well, notice the title that it starts out with. Jesus is the Son of Man. His favorite self-designation while he was here on earth, the Son of Man, said it over and over and over again. And it reveals part of his glory of what he did while he was here on earth. The Son of Man came from the glories of heaven. What do he say about himself? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. In our cosmic rebellion, we run, we hide from God, and yet in sovereign grace, Christ runs after, seeks after us. And then, just on the heels of this parable, Matthew 26. We're going to walk with the Son of Man as he's betrayed into the hands of sinners, as he's put upon a cross, beaten, scourged, mocked, crowned with thorns, crucified. Because he said the Son of Man came to be delivered into the hands of sinners and be crucified. He was the Son of Man on earth. But he comes as the Son of Man in his glory now. This scene is much different. We, we see Christ here in the Gospels in shame and humiliation, but here we see him in his glory and his exaltation, in his royalty. In his first coming, he was the Lamb of God who walked silently like a sheep led to the slaughter. But in the second coming, he is the Lion of Judah. And when he roars, the earth shakes and the nations tremble before him. When he separates the sheep and the goat, there is no balking at him. They go where he, where he says to go. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In his first coming, he could have called upon legions of angels to deliver him from the suffering and shame of the cross, but he remained silent so that he could cry out, it is finished. But now look what he comes with. And all the angels with him. Now I know we have images of angels, kind of these chubby babies with wings kind of flying around. 
That's not what angels are presented in the Bible. Every time someone sees an angel in the Bible, they fall down in fear. So this is the whole angelic army coming with Christ on his throne. It is such an army that if you could take all the military might and strength of this world and put it together on a battlefield, if they saw this army coming, the second their eyes laid hold of them, they would surrender. The white flags would go up everywhere and it would be done. That's the army that he comes with. In his first coming, he hung in shame upon a Roman cross. And here he comes sitting upon a glorious throne that everyone will bow before. All nations will be gathered to him. Every heart will be fully exposed before him. And our eternal destinies will be sealed by him in this moment. He is the judge of all the earth. He will judge righteously, perfectly. No crime will be left unpunished. No one will be able to say, that's not fair in that moment. And his judgments cannot be contended and they cannot be appealed. This is the highest court in the land. There's a story about a Supreme Court justice who was, there was a case that was coming through and he knew the person should be guilty, got to the the Supreme Court and he got off. He was acquitted. And this justice knew that this person was guilty. And he knew that the person knew that they were guilty. So he went to him after. He said, I know you're guilty and you know you're guilty. You may have escaped justice today, but there is a judge higher than I and a court more supreme than this. And you will not escape justice on that day. I hope you're ready. I've never met a Supreme Court justice, but they said that to me. I would be pretty humbled uh, in that moment. There are two thrones that should occupy every human heart, every human mind. Two thrones that should occupy your attention. There's a throne of heaven, the throne above all thrones on which Christ sits. But then there's the throne of your heart. And the question is, does the person sitting on those two thrones match? Is the person on the throne of heaven and the person on the throne of your heart the same person? Because the the prayer of the preoccupied, self-forgetful servant is, Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven. Because Christ is glorious. Well, secondly, Self-forgetful servants are preoccupied with the needs of others. So look at Jesus' discussion in verses 34 to 40 with the sheep. So verse 34, he gives this invitation, this welcome to them. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In six days, he made the heavens and the earth. From before the foundation of the world, he has been preparing this kingdom to be presented to his people. And then look at verse 35 and 36. He gives the explanation for this invitation. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then as we read, they hear that list and they're, they're shocked. They're confused. They're surprised. When did this all happen? Well, verse 40. And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That phrase, my brothers, in verse 40 is very significant for understanding the meaning and application of this parable. Every time Jesus mentions my brothers in in Matthew and throughout the scriptures, 
He's not speaking of humanity generally. He is speaking of his followers in particular. My brothers is a synonym for the body of Christ, the family of God, my bride, the church. So what Jesus is expressing here is that his heart is so knit together with his bride, the church, that what you do for his bride, you do it as unto the Lord. And we also know the opposite of that truth. What you do not do or what you do in harm to his bride, the church, you do to the Lord. Remember how Saul learned this the hard way on the road to Damascus? Stopped, blinded by the glory of Christ. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? That's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His heart is so knit together with his bride that when she is cared for, he is cared for. When she is persecuted, he is persecuted. And you've seen this in a mother with their children. So the mothers, the park, the playground, their children are playing, and the park bully comes out. And the park bully goes after your kid. What does the mom do? Mama bear comes out, growls, run, you know, scares the little child, runs, sends the bully away. Because what you do to that child, you do to the mother. But when a child receives an award or has a success in some venture, mothers who love their children know, hey, that's my reward. That, that's my success. I, I, you know, I raised you, right? Is, is, that, is that how it is, mothers? Okay. <laughs> the reason Jesus gives all these acts of service and generosity as the basis for his welcome is because love for the bride of Christ is the ultimate test of love for Christ. The ultimate test of love for Christ is do you love your brothers and sisters who are in Christ? Love for Christ's people is the visible test that proves or disproves the genuineness of your love for Christ. Think of the Apostle John, how he says this. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they can see cannot love God whom they have not seen. Love for Christ's people is the visible test that proves or disproves the genuineness of that invisible statement, I love Christ. There are two ways to tell what you believe. What your mouth says and what your life says. And one of those is far more reliable than the other. What your mouth says, what your life says. When those two things don't sync up, guess what Jesus is going to look at and point to, to say what is really the truth? Your life. And this is why we need to put Ephesians 2 and James 2 together. We need to be Ephesians 2 and James 2 Christians. Ephesians 2, what does Paul say? You are saved by faith apart from works. Saved by faith on glorious truth. And then James comes and says, Amen, Paul. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, not by a dead, do-nothing faith. Faith apart from works is dead. Imagine if you came up to a body lying on the ground uh, in the street. I know it's a traumatic thing to think about, but just imagine with me. What would you do? You would listen if there's breath. You would check for a pulse. You would see if they responded. There's no pulse. There's no breath. There's no response. What would you conclude? They're dead. If you came up to a Christian who said, I love Christ, you saw no obedience to Christ's commands, no repentance, no grief over sin, no service to other people, what would you conclude? 
They have a dead faith, not a living faith. Christ is not saying that our deeds somehow deserve his love and favor, and therefore he's now rewarding it. He's saying our deeds demonstrate that we have been transformed by his undeserved love and favor, and it has radically changed us. He doesn't say to these people, hey, come here, let me see if you are sheep. He says, you are my sheep, and here is what proves your nature as sheep. There are two ways to be motivated to serve others. Either I love because he first loved me, or I love so that he might love me. Two ways to be motivated to service. One is self-forgetful. The other is self-righteous. I love because he first loved me, or I love so that he might love me. Here's how to tell the difference. When we love so that he might love me, the duty of service far outweighs the delight. We think I have to more than I get to. And we keep a rigorous record of our deeds because we are banking on it for our righteousness before God. But when we love because he first loved us, the delight of service far outweighs the duty. And we think I get to more than I have to. And we do not keep a rigorous record of our deeds because we know that the righteousness of Christ is our hope. That's the difference. So which of these motivations more accurately describes you? I love because he first loved me or I I hope I've done enough so that he might love me. Well, this list that Jesus goes over It sounds awfully familiar. Look at verses 35 and 36 again and listen to it and see, who does this sound like? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Where did the sheep learn to love like this? What model were the sheep mimicking when they poured themselves out like this. Is that not our great shepherd reflected in his sheep? They're mimicking the good shepherd. That's where they came up with this. They were doing for others what they had tasted and seen that Christ had done for them. We were hungry and Christ became for us the bread of life. We were thirsty And he became for us the living water. We were strangers, outlaws, orphans. And what did he do? He welcomed us in to the Father's house. We were naked in the shame and guilt of our sin. And when Christ found us, what did he do? He clothed us in the rags of his own righteousness. And when we were not just sick, but dead, he said, come forth. And he made us alive together with him. We were in the prison of our own guilt, We had locked it in on ourselves, and he came and he set us free. And those who are in Christ are free indeed. This is the fountain from which all self-forgetful service flows. It is only when you drink from this fountain that you will truly experience self-forgetful service. So drink. Drink deeply, drink often, and you will pour yourself out. As Christ loved you, you will love others. We love because he first loved us. Well, thirdly, 
Self-forgetful servants are preoccupied with the deadliness of self-absorption. Self-forgetful servants know that the great enemy of self-forgetfulness is self-absorption. And it is a 24-7, 365 stalking enemy. Have you ever had the experience where you were so absorbed in a piece of technology that there's actually people physically around you trying to get your attention and you didn't even know that they were there? Or worse, you're driving a car and you didn't see the car stopped in front of you while you're on that piece of technology. Or perhaps you've had the experience where you're reading something and you get so distracted in your own thoughts that three to five pages later you realize, I have no clue what I just read. I have to go back and read that again. Or this is the one that gives me nightmares. You're in a conversation with someone, but you're not actually listening to them. You're just waiting for them to be done talking. And then they stop and say, so what do you think about that? And you, you know that if you answer, it's going to go bad. Your cover's blown. You're done for. All three of these illustrate how easy it is for us to get lost in ourselves and miss what is right in front of us. And spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus points out in the goats. So absorbed in themselves, so lost in themselves, that they do not see the opportunities, the needs right in front of them. The needs and wants of me, myself, and I can so easily, so subtly drown out the opportunity to serve others if we are not careful. You cannot serve two masters. That's how the law of worship works. You cannot serve two masters. Either in self-forgetful service to Christ, you'll pour yourselves out for others, or in self-absorbed worship of self, you will live a life of selfishness. Choose this day whom you will serve. And self-absorption, it can creep into our hearts very subtly and craftily. It's like carbon monoxide slowly, invisibly filling up a room, pushing out all the oxygen. And if you don't have a good carbon monoxide detector on your heart, you're going to miss it. So, so let me help calibrate your carbon monoxide detector of self-absorption. Here's some ways to detect and be on the lookout for self-absorption. If your consistent response to service opportunities is always too busy, you might need to check your heart. If your primary thoughts about service are how much you've done for others and how little others have done for you, you might need to check your heart. If your primary evaluation of a service opportunity is always how much of your time, your money, and your resources it's going to cost you, you may need to check your heart. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, I can't for the life of me think of any opportunity I've ever had where I can serve someone, then you not only need to check your heart, you need to check your eyes as well. Maybe get a good eye exam. Make no mistake about it. Serving others in the body of Christ is costly. It's messy. It's emotionally draining. There are often no immediate rewards and instant gratification from it. Just ask Jesus. But, which means, if you are in it for the immediate rewards and the instant payoff of, you know, kind of puffing up your sense of service, you will not be in the game very long. As as someone wise has jokingly said, ministry would be awesome if it were not for the people. It'd be great. (laughs) To dwell above with saints in love, oh, what bliss and glory. But to dwell below with saints you know, now that's a different story. (laughs) But here again, we need to look to Christ to put to death self-absorption. He is the death blow to self-absorption. When you look at him, he came to serve creatures, 
who had committed cosmic rebellion over and over and over again, time without number. He served when he was betrayed. He served when he was abandoned. He served when he was denied. He served when he was mocked and beaten. He served until his last breath because his aim was the glory of God, not the praise of man. He wanted to honor his father. Self-forgetful servants are preoccupied with the deadliness of self-absorption because they know it's the enemy of living for the glory of God and pouring yourself out for others. Well, finally, self-forgetful servants are preoccupied with the weightiness of eternity. This scene brings us to the precipice of eternity. There is almost no more hallowed and weighty scene in the entire Bible. We're brought to the precipice. We peek over. We see the two eternal destinies parting in different directions, and then we're pulled back. And I think we, we need this because we live in a world that is filled with a thick fog of right here, right now. Live for the moment. FOMO, fear of missing out. YOLO, you know, whatever thing the kids say on the streets these days. But this parable, it cuts through that fog and puts before the eyes of your hearts the weightiness of eternity like no other scene in the scriptures. And of all the material I read in preparation for this scene, what I want to read for you here briefly was the most sobering thing I read. So listen carefully. How unspeakably solemn. The world in one vast congregation, farther than the eye can reach, extends a boundless sea of human beings who will live forever. Before the majestic judge are are gathered all nations, and he proceeds to separate them one from another. And in this moment, all human distinctions are swept away. The mask is torn from hypocrisy, the veil is stripped from secrecy, and the paint and varnish is removed from a life of deceit. Beauty, wealth, power, gifts, talents, and fame are finally revealed for what they really are. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The righteous and the wicked, the follower and the foe of Christ, these are the only distinctions that matter in the place of his overwhelming presence. Each one of that immense congregation is seen and each one is fully known. Each one must give an account of himself to Christ. No blame can be shifted. No excuses can be offered. No extenuating circumstances will be accepted. You will stand there individually and personally. No one and no thing will be able to hide from his sight, but all will be laid bare and exposed in the presence of him with whom we must give an account. That is sobering. But if you are in Christ, take much comfort. Because though that day will be sobering, the solemnness of that day will be eclipsed by the sweetness of it. Because you will get to hear the invitation, come you who are blessed by my Father and enter the kingdom prepared from you from before the foundation of the world. Sent out of the garden, now welcomed in to the Father's presence. Yes, it's a courtroom. But for the believer, it's not like entering a courtroom as a criminal. It's like entering a courtroom as an orphan who has longed to be adopted their whole life. And this day they stand before the judge 
because the judge is signing their adoption papers. And they get to see that new name applied to them, that new home, that new family that they've waited for and longed for. That's the courtroom experience for the believer. Because Christ will acknowledge you as his own. You will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. You will never have to pray again, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because you will enter into the fullness of assurance. You'll never have to struggle with trial and temptation and wonder, is it worth it? Because you will know in that moment the fullness of life and joy in his presence forevermore. And all the trial, all the temptation, all the sorrow, all the suffering of this life, if you cumulatively put it together and you took one moment in the presence of Christ, it would far outweigh everything that you struggle with in this world. One moment in his presence will more than outweigh all the rest on this life. But if you're not in Christ, take heed. Because though it will be a sobering day, the solemnness of this day will only be eclipsed by the sorrow and the suffering that follow. For you will hear the great rejection personally and individually spoken to you. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. After a lifetime of rejecting Christ who freely offers you to himself, even now, the tables will finally be turned and he will reject you. You'll be sent away into eternal punishment. And all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the privilege of this life will not compensate for one moment in that place. As heaven is a place of joy full and overflowing, hell is a place of suffering, ceaseless and unceasing. It's not palatable, it's not enjoyable, I don't love preaching on hell, but it is a serious reality. The judge of all the earth does not answer to us. We answer to him. Your life is but a mist that appears for a little while. It's here like the morning dew and then it's gone. You're like a flower in the field. The wind blows on it and it's gone. It's over. And then eternity. The glory of Christ is too precious. The needs of others too many. The life of self-absorption too deadly and the weightiness of eternity too heavy to live any other life than independence on the grace of Christ in self-forgetful service as we love like the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray.